Hello, and welcome to Beyond Consulting, brought to you by ECA Partners, the only podcast dedicated to helping our listeners navigate the wide variety of options they have after a career in consulting. Our show helps listeners answer the question, what can I do after so many hours spent in PowerPoint and Excel? I'm Ken Canera, host of Beyond Consulting and CEO of ECA Partners, a project staffing and executive search firm focused on former consultants. Each week, I will host guests that have spent time in consulting and successfully transitioned to other exciting career paths, as well as executives that hire former consultants. If you're interested in tuning in for future episodes, please make sure to subscribe and check out eca-partners.com to get in touch with us. Today, our guest is Eric Pritchett. Eric is the president and chief operating officer of Terzo Technologies. Eric and his team are revolutionizing vendor relationship management and driving better decision-making and outcomes for their clients. Prior to Terzo, Eric was a corporate strategy leader at Asurion, where he focused on corporate investing and M&A. And before that, Eric successfully co-founded not one, but two companies, a technology-driven broker-dealer, Potamus, and Phase Capital, a quantitative systematic hedge fund. But before becoming a successful technology entrepreneur, Eric actually got his start in management consulting at Kearney, as well as Cartesian. Wow. Eric, welcome to the studio. You've had quite an interesting career. Yeah, thanks so much for that great intro. I think the thing you take away from that is that I must be older for sure to, to be having done all those things. Well, that that wasn't my uh, that wasn't my uh, takeaway, but pretty cool path. You know, I want to talk about a bunch of stuff today, including you know how you got to where you are. But first, you know, would just love to kind of dive into what you're doing now. So you work for Terzo, is that right? That's correct. So I'm the I'm the president and the chief operating officer. And like any classic startup, I look after CFO duties and some other things as well. We're just heading into our Series A now. We've just gone over 60 employees and we've got some nice momentum with some great Fortune 500 logos that are in the product now and committed to the company as customers. So it's a super exciting SaaS uh, leadership position at a company with with some just really great, dynamic, passionate co-founders. And we're very excited about the the kind of talent we've brought into the team, including some former consultants that are taking the leap into our startup. And it's a fun project right now and it's exciting the momentum we have right now. So that's really cool. Okay. So so help me understand this a little bit better. So so Terzo is essentially kind of like if I think about like a customer relationship management software, this is basically for vendors, right? So it's the easiest way to describe this is there's five, six trillion dollars that's going to get spent between businesses and B2B commerce, right? And so we all know that when there's a transaction, there's a seller and there's a buyer. And for years, and really Salesforce is credited for this, for years, there's been great investment and an understanding that you can improve the selling side, the top line side of this handshake by deploying CRM technology. And of course, Salesforce is the is the big one out there that everybody knows. There are a few others. And What there really hasn't been is what is the platform on the other side of that handshake because all of that commerce has a has a buying side as well. And so what we're the way we think about ourselves is we're really a CRM for all of these trillions of dollars of B two B purchasing, sourcing, third party vendor spending, and we're the platform that helps leaders and the line optimize that process and ultimately those dollars and and outcomes. So that's really interesting and also almost a little bit surprising to me that it's kind of taken this long, just given where technology is, for someone to kind of get out there and, and, and really kind of tackle this big problem. Why do you suppose that is? So I'm going to tell you something funny. 
at Terzo, I'm like one of the only very early like OG people who will ad- who will like admit that I didn't invent this whole thing, right? So, okay. So like the original insight really came from our founder and, and CEO Brandon Cart, and he grew up. You know, he spent his career selling. Um, as a very successful salesman and then sales leader at Oracle and then IBM and most recently at Microsoft. When he was at Microsoft, he had this West Coast um, West Coast cloud sales leadership position. Of course, we all know in the past five years, cloud's been a pretty good thing to be to be <laughs> to be selling, especially if you're at you know Amazon or or Azure. And um, and and the what what Brandon kept colliding with was these very sophisticated, very, you know, the biggest companies in the world, you know, you're interacting with their CIOs and you're coming in there to either renew a big contract or you're trying to migrate someone from a certain product that, you know, you want to sunset or you want to migrate some of their shrink wrap software into the, into the cloud version or whatever. And what, what B would always hear from the CIOs is, man, how are you guys always, you guys always know more about what I'm purchasing from you. You know more about when my key contracts are going to expire. You know more about what I need to buy next than than my own organization knows. And he heard this same thing at Oracle and at IBM and at, and at Microsoft. And he was speaking with a Fortune 500 CIO out on the West Coast that looked at him and challenged him to go build you know, a CRM for the buyer. That's what we need. We need a CRM for the buyer, Brandon. And, um, and so the legend starts, the legend, you know, the legend starts there and, um, he had the guts to go take, take the shot and pull together some other, some of the others of us, um, that got involved and two other great co-founders he has, um, Algi Akandi and Pradeep Thangaval and, um, really took this, this idea and went and scratched around in the market. And when he became convinced like, Hey, this really isn't out there. He really went all in on it. And with that passion was able to attract other capable folks and off we go. That's pretty cool. Okay. So then the other thing I I'm curious about is, so you guys are essentially selling to chief procurement officers. I would imagine, um, I I would imagine kind of like leaders in private equity. Talk to me a little bit about how the heck you're you're selling to CPOs. I mean, you're going after the the hardest people to sell to. One of the key things that any any startup's going to go through, right, is it's going to probably take you your first 20, 20 customer wins before you really truly completely hone in on exactly who the customer is and and exactly where those hot buttons are that are that are you know accelerating sales cycles and getting people emotional and and getting people to make a decision about a new enterprise technology, because this is an enterprise, you know, this is not a little point solution that a couple people put on their, you know, on their desktop and run a credit card for a couple bucks a month. This is a, this is a decision to go in a strategic direction um, and to bring an important piece of technology. in that's going to ultimately impact multiple teams and, and multiple groups. So we certainly, we certainly have, um, Good, great reception, although a difficult audience, as you said, with with cheap procurement officers. We see um, we see vendor governance, and we see increasing demands occurring around board demands for more vendor governance. Uh, we see legislative demands now for companies to be more knowledgeable about what's going on in their tier one supply chain. And so that's another sort of force. So you see new ESG and vendor governance type groups that are great targets for us. Some companies have formally created vendor management offices. I would estimate that if you look at the Fortune 500, you maybe have 30%, 40% of the Fortune 500 will have a vendor management office now. So that's a great target. 
And ultimately, the CISO and kind of the CIO tend to be very influential in, in this space. So, you know, CIOs are kind of the ultimate champion, um, but then that whole ecosystem kind of below and around them are also good targets for us. That's interesting. You're the president and CEO, so you're kind of in charge of, I would imagine, kind of go to market overall. What's been your biggest surprise since since you've joined Terza? This will tie into you know our, our whole thing here about sort of what management consulting arms you with when you get out into the professional world. One of the one of the things that is important with an early stage company, I think this is important with all all stages of companies, but especially so with an early stage company, is you've got to get your organizational design right. You know what is your operating model? Who who's in which seat? Which teams? How are teams functioning? What are their roles and responsibilities? And then how are they interacting with each other? And getting this sort of getting this machinery of of how do we operate and 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 who really is accountable for what is is much more important than probably you know than what gets talked about in terms of success of of early stage companies. Everyone everyone knows that post A it's all about you know to be a growth company it's can you take the idea but can you really get to scalability? The scalability is this magic word that everybody talks about, and scalability really speaks to have you built the machine in such a way that it can operate you know logically and efficiently and repeatably. Um, and so for us, I'm heavily involved in go-to-market, um, but it's it's really a partnership. We don't have a chief revenue officer yet. So typically in SaaS, you'd have sort of a CRO that would own go-to-market. Right now for us, that's our CEO, Brandon, that, that, that sort of serves that function. And so he and I partner closely with a few others on the team. And, you know, I'm involved in strategy. Brandon's very much involved in deploying the actual sales effort and then under me is is marketing, which is clearly strategic and go-to-market oriented. And then I also look after the post-sales aspects of uh, delivery and and customer success. Okay, got it. The uh, So you just brought up something that's, that's interesting that we hear a lot about, but isn't often talked about in like kind of like call it the startup world or startup ecosystem. And that's kind of like uh, customer success. Um, so Okay, let's just say you have a new client, you, you deploy the software, or sorry, you deploy the solution. What kinds of things are you doing to kind of ensure that that you're generating successful outcomes for your clients? What I think is the most important and what we've learned a lot about in the past 18 months is your enterprise sales process. It's where where do you begin pulling delivery leaders and customer success leaders into that that last is it the last 10% of the sales process before close is it the last 25% but what what we found is you don't want to close you don't want to leave salespeople alone just to have to develop and document where were the customers you know key key pain points key use cases key success criteria you want to you want to have uh, a smooth transition through the closing of the account so that the customer has already interacted with your approach to delivery and then the post-delivery ongoing, you know, account maintenance and customer success and, and ultimately having everybody on the same page when a deal is closed and when a PO gets issued before we invoice it, um, you know, this is a fancy way of saying you've got to really have a very good foundation, a good starting point on expectations. If you have that, and and you've got you know talented people in your delivery and and you know 
all 100% of our delivery people are former, you know, management consultants from SIs and, and top shops that understand how to do cloud migrations and deal with data and help and work with Fortune 500 um, operations and IT professionals and et cetera. So, you know, that skill set to go in and say, okay, now we're, now we're in, now you've bought something, now we're here to, to, to make you comfortable that, you, that we're going to get this thing deployed and you're going to start rapidly moving towards um, exper- experiencing some, some of the benefits, even though the platform may be a five-year journey to squeeze, to squeeze everything you possibly can out of it and the, the transformative power of it with a great big business. But, you know, can we start making you feel like you're having some success in that first 90 to 120 days is very important. How much do you feel like it, how much do you feel like the is technology and then how much do you feel like is service capabilities kind of like on the back end? Cause I would imagine that a lot of the things that you're uncovering is because you're on the same side of the table after kind of the sale has been made and you're you're working with a client? It's a great question. So anyone that works for me in delivery or customer success, and when I interact with our sales guys, like I'm always pounding everyone, no one wants to buy technology. No one cares about technology. They are buying a solution. They are trying to buy an outcome right? They want it, you know, they don't care how fancy our cloud implementation is of, you know, sharded databases that can do backflips or whatever. Like no one cares about that. Um, Now you're going to go through a security questionnaire and you're going to go through a lot of vetting that the technology is, you know, is where it needs to be, but that, but that's not getting you the sale that may lose you the sale, but that's not getting you the sale. So, you know, I think the people, I think the people skills that I see um, in our sales team and the people skills um, that are required in our in our delivery and customer success team are, are quite high. And it does it's not to say that you don't need to understand the technology and have you know real technology and a high quality product and good engineering and all those other things. but but no one's buying technology, right? They're trying to buy data centralization, clean data cleaning. Um, they want to transform how people are working and, and being able to interact with their workflows and um, their important vendor data. They're wanting to aggregate. They're wanting to save time. They're wanting to have smart alerting. So they're looking for business outcomes, not technology. Okay. So, okay. Now you've kind of, uh, d- kind of let, led me down the, 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 where I wanted to go, which is kind of connecting the dots between how you got from call it a business background to, you know, a technology C-suite leader and entrepreneur. Well, we can talk a little bit more about Terzo, but I, I a lot of whatever our listeners are going to be interested in is kind of like your story in terms of like, okay, you know, st- start me from the beginning. You started in consulting and, and now you're the president of a, of a tech company. How did, how did you get here? So, you know, partially, partially accidentally, um, honestly. So, you know, when I was finishing at, at Boston University, I had started the the big, the early part of my undergraduate studies um, in mathematics and with an interest in computer science. And I got I got about halfway through, and this was in the early and, and mid '90s. I got about halfway through, and I came to this realization: like I'm either going to be the most extroverted mathematician in the history of the world, <laughs> and probably not the best mathematician. Although you know, I was I was good, but you know, you, you get to a certain level and you see the other you know, the other people in those departments and you say, okay, um, do I want to be, you know, one of the weaker, more extroverted mathematicians, or do I want to transfer the finance department and be one of the stronger, (laughs) 
one of the one of the stronger quants, right? You know, I transferred to the business school just just with enough time to finish um, to finish the degree as an undergrad. And um, when I came out, I was actually thought I was going to go do a PhD program. That was my plan. I thought, you know, I'm gonna I, I, I I'm gonna go do a PhD program in something very very quantitative in 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 the field of economics, like sort of a very mathy economics type of thing. I figured that would be the geometric mean, right? Between <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I had become I had become very interested in technology and computers, and I had taken some CS, you know, uh, a, a little bit of CS in my undergrad experience, and so I thought, you know, this will be great. And then um, I just started looking into to to grad school. And, and realizing, man, this is like a, that's going to be like a five, that could be a five or six year journey. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid, I'm broke, you know, uh, I had to go to school on a scholarship to be able to afford it in the first place. And so I thought, you know, I better do something. I better get a job. And, uh, so I, I, because I thought I was going to do a PhD, I kind of had really, I had kind of booted the undergraduate recruiting process. So I was a little bit not in the great, not in the best place. Um, I was, I was fortunate enough to have a, a, a friend who uh, encouraged me to do an interview at the consulting firm. And when I got inside there, you know, it was just the, the interviewing process was all puzzles and math tests and uh, business case, uh, tricky, you know, hard questions. And, and it felt there was pressure and it was, and I thought, wow, this is, this is really cool. I can't get, I can't believe people get paid you know, to do this stuff. And, you know, I was very fortunate that they wanted me to, to, to uh, come aboard. And so I, I did join and started out in the telecom media tech space. And it was, um, you know, for me, management consulting was like going to work every day and getting to learn every day. And the biggest, the, the, the things, if you're in, if you're still in your management consulting journey, the people that were around me, my my immediate managers, my immediate seniors, uh, principals, and even partners and global practice leaders. Eventually, you know, as you as you sort of move up the chain, you you meet these people, and also many 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 people that I came across inside the companies and the many engagements um, on different continents and all over the U.S. This this is your golden opportunity to build your network, because very look around in, at the consulting firm that you're at. And there are very few people, you know, that are still consulting when they're, you know, when they're retiring, when they're 65 or whatever. There are some, there are some legends out there and there's some people that, that are just, you know, that are just unbelievable, um, that really make a career of it. And, and the consulting firms have done more to find ways to keep some of those folks around by creating like business intelligence units and other training units and things to keep some of that talent around. But the reality is, is like, I don't know the number for sure, but I think it's like 90 to 95% of everyone that starts a career in management consulting is going to go and do something else. They're not going to retire a management consultant. I, th- I think that's right. And the, uh, you, you said something that is, it's, I don't know if you look back and, and think the same thing, but it was such a good opportunity to, to take advantage of networks that you didn't even know were there. And I, I mean, I, I, I spent nine years in it and I, Still to this day, regret that I didn't kind of optimize th- that specific point. Um, and I think about it actually often, even now. Yep. And the reason I make this point is, is you know, when you're in it, you're so busy. And, and of course, we've had COVID, so things have been a little bit different. But, you know, back in my day, I mean, you were on the road every week for the most part, unless you were on vacation. Um, and, you know, and it's 
you're well supported in that regard, but, but it's, but it is a very, for a young person, uh, especially it's a, it's a huge adjustment and it almost becomes, you know, a lifestyle to be able to deliver on these demanding projects and also have, you know, any semblance whatsoever of a social life. And so a couple of things that you have to have to remember, um, network like crazy, make sure that you stay connected with the, with the, you know, when you meet people at a client site, give it three, four months after the engagement. And then, you know, out of all the people you meet, usually one or two will stand out. You don't have to try to keep in touch with a hundred people from every, you know, every engagement that you ever do. But, you know, if the one or two stand out to you, give it a couple of months after the, after the engagement's over, shoot them an email, tell them, tell them that you really enjoyed something and, and learn how to be generous and flatter people. Tell, tell people if you learn something from them, say, you know what, when I did that project, you know, X, Y, Z with you earlier this year, I really learned some valuable things that I was reflecting on this morning or that I was reflecting on in, in this other assignment I'm doing, um, or that motivated me to go read a book or motivated me to think about going back to graduate school or whatever it is. Right. And if you're, if you're genuine with people and you reach out with people, when there's clearly nothing you're asking for, you're just reaching out to them and saying, Hey, I learned something from you, or I really enjoyed working with you, or I thought some there was something there about your cult, your company culture that I thought was really cool, and I've tried to take a little piece of that back to my you know back to where I work here in fill in the blank Cambridge, Chicago, Houston, whatever, and and you'd be amazed the response you can get from people, and people will remember you for twenty years. Unless you were a complete dope on the, I, I'm assuming everyone's performance is pretty good, right? So if you're, so if you're, if you're, a, if you're a good performer, right? These, these, be generous about the fact that, like, hey, I'm learning from you too. That I, I was the one delivering that assignment, but I learned a lot of great things. Um, and and figure out how to create these connections, and they and they will last for you for 20 years because. The place where I've seen management consultants have the most difficulty is, um, and, and I've seen this a million times, is they realize that they that they want to do or they need to do something besides consulting at a point where they're really approaching or they're already at burnout. And so, and so that's the wrong time. That's the wrong time to suddenly say, oh boy, what's the game plan now? <laughs> Maybe I should go try to figure out that I should have been networking for the last five, you know, ten years. Yeah, and that, and and quite honestly, that that's when they usually you know call us, right? And it's and it's like a oh oh crap, you know, wh- what do I do now? Um, and you, your your point on um being genuine about kind of telling people what you learn from them, uh, it, it's funny because it's like one of these things to me that just is. Uh, maybe I'm just lucky in that it comes kind of naturally to me because of my personality type or something like that. But um, I call it like the give a shit rule, right? And it's like if you just if you just give a shit, right, and and you let people know, um, it, it'll come back to you kind of tenfold, right? And it's and it's yeah, okay, it's not not like that same person's gonna you know, hire you tomorrow or, or whatever, but y- you never know what's going to happen three, five, 10, 20 years, even down the road. Um, and, um, so also my big takeaway from your kind of transition from college to, or sorry, university to consulting is that, um, and for those of you that don't know, Eric, Eric looks like somebody that you would not want to, uh, get into a bar fight with. Uh, so, so I, I'm learning that Eric is a, is a secret, is secretly a geek. Um, and, uh, 
so so that's my big takeaway from 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 that. Um, okay, so so then you know you, you do you do a couple of years in consulting. You did six, I think, like six years in consulting, right? Yeah, it was it was in that neighborhood. Yeah. Okay, and then and then you kind of then you went out on 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 your on your own, if I'm not mistaken, right? Then then you kind of transitioned to become uh, an entrepreneur. Yep. So there was a transition, but there was a there was a my my exit from consulting was actually. Um, you know, the, the, the partner that had really been a great champion of mine was kind of looking around to go do other things in his own career. And so the kind of writing was on the wall and there were a number of us that had been quite tight in that practice. And so, you know, guys started, uh, looking around and, and I was one of them and an opportunity came along to go take a, a, a technology leadership role at a, at a, at a wall street firm. And it was going to require a move to Manhattan. And right around this same time, I was I was getting married to my my wonderful wife, who I'm still with, and now we have uh, a 14 year old and a 12 year old. And you know, so you know, went back to her and said, "Hey, I think this would be cool." And you know, the the financial industry was something. If you remember way back to the beginning of my story, possibly doing the financial economics or the quant economics kind of thing. So I was like, hey, you know, I've been in telecom and tech, but but this finance, you know, finance on Wall Street looks industry it looks interesting. And of course, this was before 08 when that became like the worst idea ever. So I took an opportunity to go to work in in Manhattan with a with a sort of a boutique shop. And my wife and I moved to Manhattan. Two phenomenal years there, phenomenal people, a lot of great people. Um, and then had an opportunity to go back up to uh, Boston to start the first of two um, financial services firms that were basically fintech, you know, sort of, you know, engineering driven um, financial, uh, a hedge fund and then a broker dealer. So, so that's, that's pretty cool. And also it goes to your point just around kind of uh, networking, right? So uh, a, a lot of partners, even partners will leave, right? At a certain point and it's just staying, staying kind of plugged in, not with just with clients, but with people at the consulting firm, right? They go on to do really interesting things, which is part of the reason we have this show. So I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'll tell you a mistake I made, and I'll and I'll and I'll tell I'll t- I'll tell everyone this that's looking at you know what to do next in your career. So at the right about the time that I was um, uh, getting ready to start the first business with some great people, um, I got a call from. A, a partner that I had worked with for many, many years, guy I really trusted. He was really kind of a, a mentor of mine when I was a consultant. And we had sort of been, had a two-year gap because I'd been in New York and he had been doing, you know, consulting or whatever he was doing there. And he calls me up and he goes, hey, he goes, I, I've got this, this unbelievable opportunity to go to this company, um, to go to this company, Assurian, as their chief marketing officer. And like, I'm calling up some of the old guys and, and I think this is going to be like an unbelievable opportunity. And I was like, oh, I was like, you know, and so we caught up and I said, you know, thanks so much for, for giving me a call. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm starting my own thing and like the ink's like drying on this thing I've just set up. And so what's funny is, you know, he went to Assurian when, when, when the market cap was probably 350 million. And, and, and the last time I checked, I can't say what it is now because it's a private company and it's, it's confidential, but it's, it's many, many, many orders of magnitude above that. And um, so it's funny, I did end up at Assurian later on in my career, um, leading corporate investing and M&A and, you know, lots of wonderful people there. And when I transitioned to that role, it was, it was again, ultimately through 
you know, connections I had made 15 years earlier in my career, um, you know, and you, you build that credibility in your twenties and early thirties and and people understand, you know, what you're all about and your work ethic and that you're sharp and, and how you go about things. And, you know, 15 years later, those, that reputation, you know, reputation and those networks are, are still there. And, um, you know, so I, I, I'll continue to stress the networking theme, but be, but be aware that when you go out and you try to make your best decisions, it's like, oh, I'm over here. I'm going to go do this entrepreneurial thing. And this other opportunity put right in my face. And I said no to it. And needless to say, you know, I'm, I'm happy with my own career and, and try to live life without regrets, but you have to be careful about the decisions you make because sometimes, you know, sometimes the, uh, the winning cards on the table and you have to identify it. Well, yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's le- better to be lucky than, than smart. Right. So, uh, <laughs> the, uh, I guess the, you know, the, the other silver line is, was we probably wouldn't be on this podcast together if you had gone to insurance way back then you did some interesting things with folks that you had networked and, and gotten to know and consulting. How do you make the leap from there to kind of like where you are now? Yeah. So, so when I talk to consultants, one of the, I sort of frame this with people as, You've been in the business of giving expensive advice and you're trying to get in the business of having to sort of have more ownership and more long-term operational um, roles. And, and this, is, this is something that, that, that people kind of torture themselves about. And it's really, if you think about that, when I think about the, the consulting skill set, I sort of think about people who have been trained and they've been put in the presence of complexity and ambiguity, right? I mean, you don't call a consultant in just to open or close the front door, right? Everybody knows how to open and close the front door. So when the consultants are called in, you're, you're typically brought into a complex situation where um, many questions, many gray areas tend to abound. And so what consultants are really good at, the good ones, is they, they come into this complexity and they, they transform the complexity by, by using frameworks, Right, they're trained to use frameworks. Let's use, you know, people, process, and technology framework, or let's use, you know, a kind of an as-is and a to-be, or let's use some type of, you know, investment framework, or let's use a, you know, a strategic forces kind of framework. I think, you know, porters and all those are out there, and and so they're very good at sort of saying, let's let's apply a framework, and then through the flame framework, things start to become more tangible. And then through that process, you, you bring in these people skills together with these, this, this actually this challenging combination of people skills and analytical skills. And, and through the deployment of those, you, you, you come up with new insights that you have to communicate very effectively. So if you look at that, that path that a consultant has to take on every engagement, it's, it's an incredibly strong it's an incredibly strong skill set. And so you sort of have to do a Jedi mind trick to say, you know, these same types of skills are going to apply themselves to operating. The only difference is, you know, after, after the, after the, after the frameworks are applied and when answers are known, then I have to live through and, 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 and accept ownership and accountability for, for the outcomes based on, on what we're trying to do. And so, it's, you know, consulting has like a high respect factor on usually, you know, smarts and hard work. 
And there's usually a relatively low accountability factor in terms of, hey, you give a company. I mean, who advised, you know, Time Warner to buy ALL, AOL? You know, wouldn't we love to know that? Um, or, you know, you can you can sort of come up with all these disasters. You know, it's famous. The people that were consulting, you know, Enron, you know, I think their whole accountancy firm is literally doesn't exist anymore. It was so bad. But, you know, it's it's you have this you the big the big part is to understand that going into an operating role is going to sort of up the the accountability side and you're going to have to really ex- go from strategy formulation to really living living more in that implementation mode for longer periods of time. That's something that that is surprisingly a surprise from candidates all the time. So folks will, you know, come directly out of consulting top, you know, top top firms and then kind of be surprised that their consulting experience isn't like putting them into like a CEO role right away. Uh, like it seems a little bit like fun, f- like maybe funny to us because, uh, right. Like <laughs> I, I, at this point in my life, probably value execution way more than, than pontificating about really good ideas. I'd say that's definitely kind of like one area where I'd say consulting maybe kind of like falls short. It's a little bit academic. Where else do you feel like there were kind of like gaps or, you know, hurdles that you had to overcome to get to kind of like, you know, in a position where you are now? So the, you you do have people leadership in in consulting, right? So by the time you're even just a, you know, a manager or even even uh, if you get up to engagement leader or principal, you know, you're at a point where you're leading teams and you're leading teams even oftentimes, you know, multiple projects in, in, in different parts uh, of the world you know, simultaneously. So you certainly get opportunities to lead people, but you're leading people that are all kind of very, very, very highly selected. Okay. And so it's different. It's one kind of challenge to lead. You can think about it as, you know, it's one thing to lead, you know, a platoon of Navy SEALs or even, you know, a platoon of Marines, right? These are highly, highly motivated, highly self-selected candidates that end up in these places. Um, And it's another thing to be a great leader in the, you know, in the army. Um, I would argue that's where the bigger challenge lies from a leadership point of view, right? From a leadership point of view. Um, And so oftentimes management consultants have kind of a jarring transition where they're like, oh my gosh, I just went from leading, you know, every person on every team I've ever been staffed on are all, you know, Ivy or U Chicago people or whatever. And all these insane, overly type A, you know, triple undergraduate major type people. Um, And then when you get into corporate settings, especially the large corporate settings, there's a whole different, it's a whole different world of the, of the, um, you know, the, the, the HR uh, makeup uh, is different. And so it's kind of like, wow, I've been leading special forces platoons and now I'm over here and I'm supposed to figure out how to lead an army division. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, it's just, uh, you have to, for smart people that want to learn, they will adapt and learn quickly the same way as when they're deployed on a new assignment, you know, you have to adapt and learn uh, new things about the new assignment quickly, but you can't assume that it's going to be just exactly the same. Yeah, the um, and not only not only that is the the team right. You've got we joke it's consulting. We're, we're all insecure overachievers, right? So you've got a team of insecure overachievers, but also it's a it's a smaller team, right? Uh, especially if you think about like you know the some of the top tier strategy firms, like it'll it'll be two three people teams, and it's like that doesn't really always translate well to hey, I'm gonna run a 
200 person operations team, right? It just, th- th- there's a lot of kind of nuanced learning that needs to happen kind of like on, on the way to get there. So we got a little bit of time left. Um, I wanted to also kind of just uh, just ask you. So we we ask all of our all of our guests. Um, okay, if if there we're we're building like kind of like a library of of resources. If there was one book that you could recommend that has been kind of like helpful on your journey, um, you know, whether it's life or career, what what would it be? Well, so for life. Um, I'm going to say, uh, go for, um, go for, I would recommend Murakami. Uh, so you, you know, Japanese author and, um, he, he's written a ton of books in Japanese, a ton of them have been translated in the U S but the first one that got translated in the U S was called a wild sheep chase. And it came out, uh, in the late, I forget if it was the late nineties or the early two thousands. Um, but if you want a, a whimsical, enjoyable story about about uh, someone in Japanese society that's living a modern but somewhat mediocre um, life and and falls into uh, interesting experiences um, that that's a that's a really good one that's that's contemporary um, and if you're looking for someone um, if you're looking for someone uh, a recent one, uh, for b- more business and sort of motivational and leadership oriented, I would say Ben Bergeron as the author, B- Ben Bergeron, B-E-R-G-E-R-O-N. And his book is Chasing Excellence, a story about building the world's fittest athletes. And Bergeron, Bergeron is the most, he's he's in Natick, Massachusetts, where we used to live. My wife used to be a member of his, um, of his CrossFit gym. And he is the most successful CrossFit Games coach in history. He's had male and female and team and masters uh, champions. I think he might be the only guy alive that's accomplished all that. So it's a pretty it's a pretty cool read about how to find your inner focus and um, you know and and mental strength, whatever the task may be, business or otherwise. Oh, that's cool. Are you a uh, are you a CrossFitter? So I'm not a CrossFitter. My wife uh, is is pretty serious about fitness. Um, I I have a, a I have a point of view where you know I do walks with the dog and 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 sort of um, you know try to be reasonable about my diet and and whatnot. But I take a pretty casual attitude about um, maybe maybe a little bit more of an Eastern attitude about you know playing playing the long game here. You know, trying to manage my diet and trying to get outdoors a lot and have you know, hiking and walking and, and, and that sort of exercise is how I, how I get by. Great. So Eric, like I said, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Um, I just want to kind of like step back now, kind, kind of to Terzo, right? Obviously really inter- interesting kind of like enterprise solution that, that, that you guys have out there. Where are you, you know, kind of in, in your journey and kind of like, where are you guys looking to go? In our journey now, um, the company was incorporated in this date's kind of funny, March 16th of 2020. Oh. So we are, we are like literally, wow. we are literally a pandemic company. You know, we started, we started the, the, the company, um, with the two U S based co-founders were in LA and I was still in NorCal and, um, our other co-founder, uh, Pradeep Thangaval was, was in Chennai, India, where we still, where we still have a, an engineering campus today. And, you know, a lot has happened in, in 2020, you know, it took real strength of mind to keep this project going. Um, because we, 
didn't have a customer yet, didn't really know the product market fit yet, didn't have a seed round done yet, um, and, and really just were, were truly at the beginning stages um, of trying to figure out what this all could be. And um, some really, some really good people, you know, joined in, in, in 2020. We landed our first customer in December of 2020, uh, which was a goal for that year was to at least get one before that year ended. Um, we did start raising um, angel, angel capital there in the fall of 2020 and started getting some real great, um, some real good established um, angel investors in the Silicon Valley area, primarily. Um, that took an interest in what we were trying to do that had been successful with their own SaaS or data, you know, data oriented businesses. Um, and that, that gave us a nice, a nice push. And then um, things started really coming together for us when the new year came on. I think everybody was excited about vaccines and sort of excited about, Hey, business leaders are going to start, you know, things are going to kind of open back up and investors and business leaders are going to um, get refocused now on, you know, the world has to go on. And so there was a, a new energy in, in 21, I think not so much on our side, we were energetic the whole time, but it felt like the, the fortune 500 was kind of coming back to life and that's who we're trying to sell to. Um, and the investors were kind of coming back to life and that's who we were trying to attract as investors. And so, you know, in March, we closed our first big enterprise customer, big international bank. And, um, and then in April, we followed that on with, with one of the largest retailers in the world. And that sort of back-to-backing those two wins um, really galvanized investors that we had been talking to all throughout the fall. And so on the back of those two wins, you know, we very quickly got the seed round then to come together with a very nice institutional round. You can check it out on our website, um, Great Oaks Ventures and NJF Capital and Innovation Global and Abnormal, um, Abnormal Ventures all came in. And that's when things really got going, right? So now, now you've got enough of a, of a, of a, of a traction with some big customers and you've got some, uh, a little bit of capital to work with. So that's when I relocated from Nor- uh, NorCal out to Atlanta uh, because we knew we wanted to get somewhere where we could build the operating HQ that would be um, in a market that was kind of open for business, for lack of a better description, and where you know, there's, you know, you got a 6 million plus kind of Metro here with a very, um, diverse talent set, um, diverse in every way, you know, it's a cosmopolitan place and it's a very educated place. And so we knew we, we, we knew we could land here and put together, you know, finance and accounting and marketing and, you know, all these different teams, customer success, you know, data science, you, you know, if you want it, you can build it in places like this. And so we, we, we started to um, get ourselves organized here. Um, and then since then, we've had a few more customer wins. We had our first public sector win. Um, l- late last year in the fourth quarter, we got um, we got a state, a U.S. state uh, on board, which is a huge win because it's public sector. And then um, we got – we got uh, our largest win ever was, uh, was in December. We almost got it to land on my birthday. We missed by three days. Um, but it felt like a birthday present and it, and it's one of the largest financial institutions in the world. And, um, you know, then, then everything has just kind of become a blur with, um, starting the new year, you know, our first quarter this year, first quarter, 2022 is probably going to surpass in one quarter. We'll probably surpass our total sales to date, um, in a, in a quarter. And, um, as, as you mentioned, right, when you kicked off the call, like we're starting to see how our product 
fits into themes like private equity. How does a private equity firm look at using our tool across a portfolio to understand optimization of their spend and their and their vendor ecosystem? We're starting to see use cases in in corporate holding company kind of structures, um, and we're and we're still seeing use cases in um, in the sort of later stage, you know, high growth startup sort of pre IPO type of space um, where companies are maybe preparing for an IPO. Um, and wanting to up-level a lot of their compliance and a lot of their processes to get ready for some of these SEC requirements around disclosure and you know all the stuff that happens when you when you accept that world. And so um, we literally just added um, between February fifteenth and March one, we just onboarded uh, roughly twenty new employees. We went over sixty employees now um, globally, and we're going to be setting up shop. Um, we have uh, we operate in India, the U.S., um, and Canada right now, and we're setting up Terzo Europe in Switzerland in the next couple of months. And um, you know we're we're also in the process of um, having substantive discussions about uh, about doing an A round this this spring. Um, even amidst the public market turmoil that's happening, you know if you're if you're building a real business that people are excited about, you know investors are still are open for business and, you know, any way uh, you like your 18 hour day tumbled together. uh, That's, that's how we're doing it right now. But it's, you know, it feels good because we're, uh, we're making great progress and we, we're, we're very excited about what's going on. And we got a lot of, a lot of great people coming on board. I guess that's one thing that probably won't change uh, from consulting to uh, to kind of a role like you have uh, with Terzo is that the, the 18 hour days aren't going away um, and anytime soon. Well, good stuff, Eric. Really appreciate you uh, you joining us today. Um, if if anybody wants to kind of like learn more um, about Terzo, where, where should they go? Well, our website is www.terzocloud.com. And we're on LinkedIn. If you search Terzo on LinkedIn, we've got uh, a nice little blue blue fade sort of triangular logo. That's who we are. If you want to uh, check us out on LinkedIn um, and on our, our website and on LinkedIn, you can find various content and um, media that we've got out there and some blogs um, that we do. I will say one last thing, you know, for folks, you know, for management consultants and the 18 hour, you know, the 18 hour sort of workday kind of comment. You know, it's, it's, if you're, if you're, whatever you're going to do in your career, like there's, there's not just one way to go about it and there's different levels of passion, but I've always felt, you know, I don't want to be doing something if I'm not passionate about it. And so, and then when I am passionate about it, I tend to be, um, you know, working at it a lot because I get, I get very focused on it. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's not really 18 hours, you know, every day, all the time. I mean, it comes in fits and starts. And, um, I do think it's important for young people to realize it's important to, to have, um, your goals can be outside of just work. So, you know, my wife is amazing and I've, I've, I'm blessed with an amazing 14 year old daughter and 12 year old son who I have great relationships with and, you know, have spent time with them over the years as well. So, if you if you if you want to look at a philosophy of how companies are kind of going at it today, and this includes Terzo, I think there is a more conscientious approach. And so Terzo, Brandon Card and I have both taken the conscientious pledge. And if you go go check out conscientious.com, um, it's a movement started by Ryan Breslow 
who is the founder of Bolt, and the, and and Bolt is really taken off, and he's he's sort of trying to popularize. You know, let's come out and think about a new social contract between the employer and the employees where we can, where we can really sustain passion and avoid burnout um, and be conscientious about how we're going about our workplace. And so it's not, it's not just the hundredth diversity and inclusion statement you're going to read this year. Um, It does of course include some of those topics, but um, if you check out conscientious, conscientious culture and conscientious.com and the conscientiousness pledge, you will see that that Terzo has made that pledge, and we're, uh, you know, we're about working hard, but we we also care a lot about folks enjoying their lives. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's a good kind of wrap concluding point. Is that I don't know about you, but what I've kind of observed um, in consulting, I felt like we were doing eighteen hour days to do eighteen hour days, whereas like now. You know, it, for a lot of good reason, changes happen, like which you've just pointed out, and and it's 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 a lot more fluid. It's a lot more kind of integrated with life, and it's less about kind of like the amount of hours that you're doing, but just kind of like you know the fulfillment and the output that that, that you're generating. That's right, and you gotta you've got to realize like times like right now, you know, if you're going to onboard 20 new employees and grow your company by 30 percent and have a quarter that exceeds the you know, all the sales up to that point, and you're trying to deal with investors all at the same time, it, you're going to have to accept that there are going to be some 18 hour days to make that work. But it's, but you learn that it's not, you know, year round, right? You're, you have to, you have to learn how to, how to, I, you know, there was a great HBS article, manage your energy, not your time. And so that's, if you, if you sort of operate that way, where you accept that sometimes you're going to have to lean in really hard, um, and other times you're going to be able to work smart and 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 lean back and and recover. Um, what really matters is you know are you are you getting the results you want and are you are you managing the output and and delivering um, you know the way that that you, that you want to. I like that kind of paradigm in terms of managing your energy because that that's how you would approach like a workout, right? Now you're speaking my language. Well, Eric, such a pleasure to have you on today. If folks want to get in touch, check out Terzo. For the importance of of the solutions component being so important, it is one of the most beautiful interfaces I've I've ever seen uh, in terms of kind of uh, enterprise software. So whatever you guys are doing there, keep it up and look forward to uh, kind of hearing more about your success in the future. Thank you, and Ken, let me thank you for for inviting me on. It's it's always so much fun when we interact. We've uh, I, I feel fortunate that we've been friends, and. Um, love what you're doing here trying to reach out and and have have management consultants get some content on on where this where this ride may all go so it was a lot of fun awesome thanks so much eric thanks for having me for our listeners as a reminder you can check out our podcast on apple and spotify and just make sure to subscribe for future episodes and if you're interested in learning more about eca that's eca-partners.com or beyondconsulting.info thanks so much